Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bazzaro. I'm your host, and that's B as in boy, I-double-Z-A-double-R-O. And today I have with me my loving and understanding co-host, Deborah Micus. Hello. Also my business partner and the glue that pretty much keeps me together. (laughs) And today I have with us Night Shift Brewing from Boston, Massachusetts, Michael Oxton. How are you doing today, Michael? Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going very well. How's the how's the weather out there in Boston? It is gorgeous. It's like one of our best days we've had in a long time. That's awesome. And so, Michael, tell us a little bit about your background um, and how you became a, a sort of food and beverage entrepreneur. Sure. Um, I actually like to think that the the, the company kind of started, uh, you know, way back in two thousand seven with. Uh, like basically roots in the culinary world. Um, you know, we, my friend uh, Rob and I, uh, we had just graduated college in 2007 and we moved to Boston from Maine. Um, we're actually, we were in Somerville and we were cooking a lot of food at home and just like, you know, it was our first time with like our own nice kitchen and like, I mean, it wasn't that nice, but, you know, buying food from the grocery store, by ourselves like it was our first time really experimenting with like recipes uh and you know we just got really excited about that and somehow that evolved into uh, a discussion around you know we love beer uh, we've done a little home brewing in college you know let's start home brewing uh and trying to take you know some of our sort of like food inspiration uh in cooking and apply that to beer uh, you know, one of the things I think we noticed was that, you know, there's a lot of beers on the shelf that were kind of similar and we just thought, Hey, we could, we could potentially brew something different, kind of weird, uh, using some, you know, food inspiration. Uh, one of the first beers we did really successfully was we called it BT and it was a wheat ale with green tea, honey, and orange peel. Um, and you know, that was just like, let's just see what happens if we try and, you know, put tea and honey and orange peel into a beer um, as opposed to, you know, a a tea, uh, which was something we were drinking a lot of. I think we were both sick. Um, And it it turned out awesome. And it was one of the beers we launched with when we started the company officially uh, in 2012. And so, I mean, so you guys are, are obviously, you launch your first beer. So, you have one beer. I mean, what are the next steps? I mean, how do you go to market? I mean, it's it's always amazed me because people come up with beers and do home brewing, and then, you know, you, you see them many years later, like there's a company involved, but we don't see the steps that happen from the day you make that first beer to how you got your first canning machine or bottling machine or keg machine to to where you are now. Because, I mean, you guys have a pretty recognizable brand and it's grown pretty yeah. pretty large since 2012. So, I mean, what were sort of the steps from there? I mean, there had to be hardship, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, for five years of home brewing, it was, I mean, it, the, the name of our company comes from, we were working late into the night home brewing, and we just kind of called ourselves the night shift brewers. Um, once, once our home brewing uh, project sort of, felt like it became official. Uh, We just wanted to name ourselves something. So we called ourselves Night Shift Brewing. um, And, you know, like, I mean, but it's, uh, I would say like 80 to 90% cleaning. 
Um, but the end result is a beautiful product that tastes delicious. And so, you know, we got really passionate about home brewing and we just kept upgrading our equipment uh, and talking about, you know, what if uh, we were to start a business and what if we could do this instead of our day jobs, which were all, you know, desk jobs with corporate companies. Um, and then ultimately, you know, in, in around 2010, we started putting together a business plan, uh, raising some capital between friends, family and ourselves. And then we incorporated in 2011, found a space in Everett, Mass, and bought our equipment um, really, really small. I mean, our, our first brew system was glorified home brewing. Um, bought a really bootleg bottling machine, and, you know, we kicked it off tiny. Uh, 2012, first year, we brewed uh, 250 barrels, which is just a tiny amount of beer. Um, to give you some perspective, this year we'll probably produce around 40,000. Um, so, it, you know, it was really small and, um, I mean, the, the, the growth has been, I mean, it's been fast, right? I mean, 250 to 40,000 barrels in about seven years. So it, it sounds really fast and crazy and it has been fast and crazy, but I will say like, you know, every step has been pretty organic. Um, we've really grown by demand. So we've let the consumers help decide, you know, how quickly can we grow? We've never really tried to, you know, force beer into the market that isn't being asked for. Um, we've relied a lot on taproom business to help, you know, both fund our growth because it's more profitable, uh, as well as just connect with consumers uh, at, you know, our home base. Um, so that's been a huge part of it. And I would say the other big, big key is just failing quickly and making sure that, you know, when something's not working, we stop it quick and try something else. And so... Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you imagine you probably had to go source equipment. I mean, how did you figure out what equipment you need? I mean, does I guess I don't in my head I'm like does home brewing actually scalable to brewing in a large volume or did you have to learn about the equipment and learn about the things you needed in order to scale from that home brewing to your own business in 2011-2012? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a ton of research. Um, you know, so I'm more on sort of like the marketing, sales, branding side, especially in the beginning. So I wasn't as focused on sort of the, the equipment uh, process side as um, there's three of us total who founded the company, myself, Mike O'Mara and Rob Burns. And the other two were a little more focused on that. But I mean, I, I can definitely attest that tons and tons of research um, and just learning went into that. Uh, but I mean, at the same time, it is, there's also just like trial by fire because there's only so much you can do uh, when you're going from a homebrew setup to, you know, a bigger setup. Um, and so, you know, I mean, our first few batches, I would even say like our first, I don't know, 20 batches were definitely all, I mean, not even like a hundred were like learning processes, every single one. Um, I mean, I still think we're learning to this day, but there's a lot more learning in the beginning because we just you know, didn't really know what we were doing. Um, but I, it was fun, and we were committed to, you know, producing high-quality beer, so our standards were really high, and we worked insane hours and just, you know, didn't stop. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons we've learned is just, like, keep at it, like, grind it out, um, don't take shortcuts, you know, that the customer notices if you do, and... Every time we, you know, took a little shortcut, we noticed, you know, we, we paid for it later um, more severely. Well, and I, I want to ask, because not all states, I mean, I think all, st 
not all states like went down the road of microbreweries very quickly. And I think it's been over the last 20 years. Has When did Massachusetts allow in with Sam Adams? Everyone knows Sam Adams, so I'm going to use him as a reference. One of sort of these first sure. microbreweries that came in. I mean, because I don't know. Sorry, well, any, the question's basically about microbreweries, because I know in a lot of states they had to get licensing for it, and it became something that had to be petitioned for in the in the government and stuff like that. Yeah. So was it Massachusetts already well along that way by the time you guys entered the market? Yeah, it, it was. Um, but I do think there was sort of like, I mean, you can look back, there's pretty much like an explosion of craft breweries that happened um sort of in like the, you know, 2008 to 2014 period, um, about six years there where you saw, you know, just really explosive growth. And it, it, it's actually continued since 2014. But right as we were coming onto the scene, it was just so interesting because a bunch of other local breweries um, were either, you know, really ramping up or, um, you know, burgeoning as well. You know, Mystic, Slum Brew, um, Trillium, Treehouse, um, I mean, the idle hands, there's a ton, um, pretty things. It, it was pretty, uh, it was really exciting for us because we were part of this sort of community that felt pretty new. Um, you know, you had some est- more established breweries like Sam Adams, Harpoon, um, you know, Wachusett, um, Mayflowers. So there's a few others that had been around for a little bit longer. Uh, but we did join, you know, what was, you know, quickly, a quickly growing community, and, um, I mean, I, I do think what you also saw was a shift in the laws that allowed breweries to serve beer on premise, um, through their tap rooms, draft beer. So when we started, we were just doing bottles out the door, uh, out of our tap room and growlers. And if you wanted to try something, you could just get a little sample. And then some laws were changed that allowed us to start pouring drafts for people and selling them. And I mean, that totally changed the taproom experience. And I mean, today you see it, anyone who's got a taproom, it's all about, you know, on-premise drinking. Um, and you know, it, it's a part of the business model. Um, you know, there's really high margins in draft beer and it allows consumers to spend a lot more time, you know, sort of participating with the brand in a really authentic way, uh, at their location, as opposed to just, you know, sampling from a little plastic cup and then, you know, grabbing a four pack to go. So when you guys very first started brewing, was it a hobby or did you do it with the intent of starting a company? Yeah, um, it was a hobby to start. Because uh, I, I know lots of people who've had kits back. and whatnot and they do their home brew. I know lots of people who have kits and they do home brews and it's just kind of a hobby. And so, you know, I was yeah. just curious, what, is that how it started or was it like from the get go, we're going to start a company? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it definitely started as a hobby. Um, it was, yeah, it grew out of just like, this is really cool and interesting. Let's just play around and experiment. Um, so that was the reason we started homebrewing. But I will say, you know, as early as 2007, which was our first year doing it, I remember some really late night discussions on the couch, um, you know, us just tossing around ideas of like, all right, if we turn this into the business or a business, you know, what would our packaging look like? Uh, what would we need? I mean, it was, I, I think we're, we all have like pretty entrepreneurial spirits. Um, and we wanted to be our own bosses almost since we graduated college. And so there was that desire. I think if we didn't start a brewery, we were going to try and start a different company. So there was some inevitability, I think, 
to starting something. And uh, the fact that we were so heavily involved in and passionate about brewing uh, just kind of paved the way for that to be what we started. And tell us about the packaging, um, because I think what you guys have done and your marketing and everything is so awesome. So how did you how do you sort of come up with your packaging and, and where the ideas come from? I mean, you're the, the one who concentrates on marketing, so I feel like you have an inside track on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I I, um, I actually drew our, our OWL logo way back in 2000, I think it was like 2009, um, when we were still homebrewing. And the goal there was just like, let's throw something on our label so we're not, you know, giving our friends these homebrewed beers in bottles that are other breweries labeled because that's very typical in homebrewing is you just, you know, whatever bottles you have kicking around, you just clean those out and fill those up with your homebrew. Um, and I mean, we, we sometimes went through the labor of actually getting rid of the labels on them and putting our own, but sometimes you just put your own label over the other one. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that, that originated as just like, we want something to throw on our bottle. So it looks a little more official. So I drew our logo, um, which has been with us since the beginning, um, that hop owl, and the inspiration there was really like, let's, let's have something, you know, that's kind of lively. Uh, an owl just feels exciting. It's nocturnal, so it works with the night shift theme. And obviously it needs to feel like beer. Uh, and so I, you know, incorporated the, the look of a hop. Um, I probably drew about 200 owls until I got to that one. And, um, you know, I, I will say, like, we, we've stuck with it and we've made it a bigger and bigger part of our branding. Um, and I, I think that this is part of, the, you know, I, I sort of referenced failing quickly earlier. Um, but I, the other half of that is when we see something successful, just like, you know, fuel that fire. And so when we see, when we saw people really responding to the owl, we decided, all right, let's make it bigger on the labels. Let's put it in more places. Um, that is the front and center of every single label that we do, or almost every label. And, you know, the, the goal is like if you are at a package store and you're scanning the shelves, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there and the owl just pops right out. And, you know, if when you see that, it's a night shift beer. Um, as far as like the rest of the packaging goes, you know, the general design, um, I designed our first labels back in 2012. And my approach was actually to just go into a I went to a package store or a few package stores and I just looked at the shelves and just wanted to see like are there any patterns here? Is there anything that, you know, is standing out or um, that someone's not doing? And my big takeaway at the time was there's just tons of busyness and lots of color and lots of black on the shelves. And I went to the wine section and there was just a lot of white labels and I thought that was pretty interesting. So uh, I went back and we, at the time we were doing these 750 mil, you know, champagne cork and caged bottles. And so adapting sort of a wine-like look, higher end, uh, felt right. And so I, I came up with like a, a pretty white-based label with the owl up front and center. Um, and that did really well for us because it, it just, you know, it popped on the shelf. There weren't a lot of white labels. Um, and I, I like to think it was well enough designed, uh, but it wasn't perfect. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And then um, when we transitioned to cans, we definitely, you know, modified our labels completely. Uh, but you know, again, the goal was uh, we stuck with the white because I still don't think there's a lot out there. And we wanted to get much more sort of playful with the design. Uh, 
keep it a little color, more color oriented uh, with like some vector graphics in the background and just try and tell a story. I mean, I, I think the consumers really respond to just storytelling and, you know, our Chantilly has hop vines in the background. It's just a simple way of telling you this is a hoppy beer, uh, but you also have to keep the label looking pretty. Uh, Whirlpool, our flagship pale ale, just has this kind of fun swirly yellow uh, swirl in the background of it, which is kind of referencing Whirlpool. And it just, it feels fun. Yeah, your packaging's amazing. It's super fun to look at. And even your names are kind of cool. And, you know, especially when you look at the ingredients and stuff, it, you can tell you guys have fun with it. And, um, you know, I can see how this totally pops on the shelf. And, you know, a lot of times that is the packaging. You know, the packaging is what draws the consumer oh, yeah. in. Because if you don't get to sample it, which you really don't ever get to do, you know, it's not like food where a lot of times they sample it. You know, it's it's an yeah. easy way to get people to kind of grab it. I know I do it when I'm going to some sort of party or whatever and I need to grab a bottle of wine. You know, a lot of times you buy it based on what the label looks like or something that's kind of fun. And so you're, you guys have right. done an amazing job with your packaging. It looks it's, it looks awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll say this too. We um, we've done a you know we have, we have our flagships right, like our our big batches of beer that go out to the wholesale uh, market. But ever since the beginning, we've also done a ton of just like small, tiny batches, small releases. And I mean, that's probably I, I don't know what we're at, but it's got to be over four or five hundred. <coughs> Excuse me. And you know, along the way, you're just creating so many labels, and I, there's just so much learning that happens when you do that many. And so you see what works, you see what doesn't, um, and, you know, you have to screw up a bunch to finally do something well. And I, I just think we, we're constantly learning because we're always releasing so many small batches of beer and just trying to get weirder and funkier and different with our labels every time. Well, and I love the names. And for the audience, whoever's listening in, if you go to nightshiftfamily.com and click on their beers, you can see all of them. And I love how predominant the owl is on the can. I think that's awesome. And everyone that can look in could see it. But I also, I'm going to ask the question because there's one on here right now that's not an owl and it's phone home and it's under your limited releases. He's in the basket. Oh, the Owl's E.T. Tiny Owl. The Owl's E.T. But, I mean, how do you guys come up with these different flavors? I mean, you mentioned four or 500 different flavors that you guys have come up with. I'm going to ask about a few of them because I think they're awesome. But let's start with Phone Home. I mean, where did that idea come from? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's just this, – this, I really do think, comes from that sort of, like, culinary curiosity. Um, you know, with beer – you know, you have four basic ingredients you can play around with. Um, the water, uh, which which you don't play around with too much, but, I mean, we, we do, um, you know, you, you do add minerals and um, you, you can, you know, affect basically all sorts of parts of the water profile depending on if it's a hoppy beer or a malty beer or a sour beer. So we will really change the water. Um, so that's one area of play, um, probably the least exciting to consumers. <laughs> and then malt, and that's really where you go, you know, light beer, dark beer, red ale, whatever. Um, and it obviously adds various levels of character, caramel, roast. Um, and then, you know, your hops, which are, you know, super varying in flavor, aroma. And then your yeast, which can be sometimes the biggest impact on your beer of all. Um, so, 
those are your four basic areas of play. And then on top of that, you can do all sorts of other stuff. You know, you, I mean, it's, it's like cooking in the kitchen. You can add spices, herbs, uh, honey, maple syrup. You can barrel age it. So, I mean, it, there's so little, there's so, if you look at it the right way, I think there's so um, little that's limiting you in terms of how you play around. So, I mean, to us, it's like pretty easy. It's like a playground. And you, every single time we approach a recipe, it's just like, what do we want to do that's kind of fun and interesting? And I, I think if your tolerance for risk is pretty high, it's just like, as long as we aren't messing with like the quality, right? It, it, we're, we're following our processes and we're reducing the oxygen level and we're um, fermenting it the right way and watching temperatures, you know, what, what we're playing around with is just kind of fun. And like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but you see what consumers react to. And when something works, you just go, okay, that was interesting. Let's uh, try it again, or let's try it again, but a little differently. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, it's definitely a challenge now at this point to consistently, I guess it's a challenge to ourselves to consistently like come up with something that's brand new. Um, I think almost any beer that gets released, someone's done somewhere in the world uh, similarly, but um you know, at the end of the day, like our water is unique. I mean, our process is unique. Um, our people who are brewing it are unique. So like there's always the night shift stamp on it. Uh, and as long as, long as consumers stay interested, like we're going to just keep playing around. And I'm seeing, I believe it's the percentages. I'm presuming that's alcohol. Is that correct? Sorry, say that one more time. I'm seeing percentages. Does that relate to the alcohol content? Yes. And so, I mean, I'm curious. So how do you guys control that? And how do you decide where you want each one? I mean, obviously, I mean, there's kind of pros and cons to both ways you go and your marketing ability to different people. So, you know, how do you decide where you want that to land for each product line? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that comes back to sort of like, it just kind of rolls into the overall discussion about the beer uh, when we're sort of planning it out. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm just getting over a cold. Um, so, you know, when we're planning through a beer, I mean, I mean, first of all, I guess I should say there, there's sort of styles of beer that you typically try and fit within those windows. So if you're going to brew a pale ale, you know, it's going to probably fall between 4.5 and 5.5%. If you're going to do a double IP, it's probably around 8%. An imperial stout, you're probably looking at around 10 to 12. So, you know, that kind of stuff is just set as um, guidelines for styles. And so, you know, you work within those and you just set up, you hit a target style. Um, but it's also just like, what kind of user experience do I want for this beer? Um, you know, Nightlight, for example, uh, it's like our you know flagship light beer. Uh, it's our attack on Bud, Budweiser, Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light. Um, we can get into this a little bit more if you guys want, because I, I think it's one of our most interesting areas. But, you know, that one, obviously, we weren't going to go with an 8% beer because we want it to be light. And the more alcohol you have, the higher calories you have. Uh, so that's a 4.3% beer, 120 calories. Um, you know, there wasn't there was sort of a discussion around should it be 4, should it be 4, 5, 4, 3. Um, and, you know, you can probably you can spend a lot of time thinking through the tinier details. Uh, but we try and, you know, just target what we think is going to be the best user experience for the profile we're going for with that beer. Um, Santilli, for example, our flagship IPA, it sits around 6%. You know, so that's definitely a little bigger than our, our light beers. 
um, you know, a couple of those and you're feeling pretty good, but like, it's also not going to knock the wind out of you. Uh, like our, you know, 87, which is a double IPA, you know, a couple of those and you're feeling, you know, really tippy. Um, and so, you know, it just depends. Uh, you know, some people, a double IPA, some people or most people tend to just have one of those at the end of the day. Um, it's not one of those beers you sit down and drink a few of, um, typically, uh, where you might do that with something like Nightlight or Whirlpool or Pale Ale. Hey, tell us the story about Nightlight. You sort of touched upon and I love the can because it reminds me of a light bright as we were kids. I was trying to remember yeah. what they were called. Yeah, the light brights. Awesome. And they're, yeah. so they're amazing. So I love the can and I love the, I mean, the packaging and the, the logo on that is just phenomenal. I love the owl, how he's sort of in a light bright format. But You'd mentioned like just the Coors Light and the Bud Light and all that, and going after that. So, um, tell us a little bit about that. For sure, yeah. Um, so way back when, uh, not that long ago, actually, 20, 2016. Yep, twenty sixteen. We brewed, or we were talking, and we were like, basically, the brewers were all um, the brewing team would finish their shift. And a lot of the time we wouldn't have a really light beer on draft. And, you know, what's very common for brewers almost anywhere is to just grab something post shift, but they don't want to like get hammered. And so a lot of the time they would be pulling like Miller light out of the fridge to just like, you know, slam a Miller light real quick. Cause it was just easy drinking and felt good at the end of a shift. And I think like our head brewers just like, guys, like we can do better than Miller light. Like let's just brew a light beer and that'll be that. Um, so we kind of just did it as like, we can do this too and better than the big guys. And we brewed a really small batch of it and canned it. Um, and you know, we got really playful with the label and it didn't look that different than the one that we have out now. It was almost the same. Uh, and we called it nightlight, just kind of play off of Bud Light. And, um, you know, the, the goal was like, let's just tease, tease the big guys, um, instead of, uh, you know, big white can or blue can. We just went with like black with like a super <laughs> funky owl. Um, and the other thing about doing light beer is it's actually really hard because there's very little to hide behind in terms of flavor. So like if you brew a big IPA or a big stout with tons and tons of hops or tons of malts and roast, if you have like some process errors or fermentation problems that happen or any off flavors, you can often mask that with hops and malts or whatever. So, I mean, it's not to say like it's easy to brew IPAs, but like it's definitely easier to hide behind some flavors because there's so much else going on in the beer. Uh, a light beer, it's really hard. There's just very little going on in the beer. So if you screw something up, people taste it. And so it's a challenging beer. And so it was a challenge to ourselves to make something better. So we brewed it, released it, and... Like we didn't, we expected people to be like, you guys are idiots, like whatever. Uh, and just, it wasn't going to move that quickly, but it was more for us and consumers loved it. And we sent, I think we brewed another batch because it went so quickly and we sent some out to our retail stores and typically, um, you know, retail stores will break down a four pack and sell singles when it's like a really sought after triple, triple dry hops, IPA or whatever. And uh, they were breaking down our nightlight four-pack and selling them as singles, which was nuts. Um, you just don't see that. And we were just like, okay, something's going on here because 
people wanted it so badly that retailers had to make them, you know, one per customer. Um, so summer ended. We didn't want to really keep it going into the winter because we, we weren't sure what to do about it, but we knew something was uh, interesting. So we brewed a lot more in 2017, uh, and it, it did really well again throughout the warm season. And then we were like, okay, th this is like, this is something um, that we can probably grow. And so we put together a bigger plan for it. And then 2018 was like the big launch into the wholesale world. Uh, and we did 12 packs. We got four packs out there, lots of draft. Um, and year to date, 2019, it's our number one beer by volume uh, so far. So it's, That's you know, crazy. grown leaps and bounds. Yeah, totally crazy. Uh, it's doing really well in New York, which is one of our other markets. Um, and people, do you, think that's, you know, they really respond to it. And, and do you think it's because it's a light beer or do you think it's, I mean, what do you think is the driving factor behind it? I mean, obviously there's a huge market for light beers. Yeah. You see it everywhere. I mean, I yeah. was going to say well, that I thought maybe like in the microbrewery world or in the beer world, you only know of Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light. You don't really know microbreweries well, really go near it. Well, that's part of it, right? That was definitely part of the plan is, I mean, we spend all this time competing in the craft brewing space, which is mostly IPAs and sours and whatever. And, you know, if you look at like, what's the largest beer category out there, it's light beer. And so why are we giving, why are we basically letting all the macro brewers own that? Why wouldn't we try and take a slice out of that pie um, instead of fighting against, you know, our craft brethren, uh, you know, every day? <laughs> And so we're, I mean, we're still doing that with a lot of our SKUs, but um, part of the incentive was just like, this is a huge category. Um, and, you know, why wouldn't we try and play with it or play in it and uh, produce something better than what the big guys are doing? Um, I think the other reason it's successful, or I think that that plays into the reason why it's successful, which is, you know, it's definitely got sort of like this David versus Goliath stance. And I think people love the idea that like, we're kind of sticking it to them. Um, you know, we're, we're doing it a little better. It's crafts. I mean, my pitch to anyone is like, if you're going to go buy Bud Light, if you're a Bud Light drinker and you're going to go buy it, like just give it, give us a try because it's going to taste better. It's almost the same price point and it's made by a local company that's, you know, craft and putting money back into the community, uh, through our workforce. Um, so why wouldn't you want to support, you know, that as opposed to Bud Light, which is a, you know, billions of dollar, uh, corporation global, based out of brazil <laughs> well and i think one of the things with light beers at least for our generation is that we sort of see it as what our parents drink and or the right. older generation drinks and it's not as cool as hip or unique anymore which is why there's so much attraction to microbreweries so having a right. light beer that sort of represents our generation which is the night bright or the Totally. Light. Night light is the beer. I'm like, yeah. when light bright is the <laughs> is the toy that we all yeah. used to play with, and it sort of represents our generation, and it and it's fun, and it's cool, and it's hip, and it's colorful, and and I think that's awesome. So I think that it's just a a much better representation of the generation that drinks beer now. Um, in that right. you know in the. 20s 30s and 40s or anyone that definitely had a light bright i knew it as soon as i saw it yeah. i was like that's amazing so um, yeah I, I think the branding is fun and people respond to playfulness um 
So I, that that's also part of it. I think it's successful, you know, in part due to just like it feels fun, it feels playful, it makes light beer feel, um, you know, not corporate, and people dig that. You know, it, I'll say finally, there is there is a slight consumer shift towards lighter drinking beers that we're seeing um, as people become a little more health conscious, and so. You know, I mean, our, our our heavier, quote unquote, heavier beers are still doing fine, but um, you know, generally speaking, there is definitely uh, consume. There are consumers that are a little more interested now than they used to be in uh, you know supplementing their beer purchases with something lighter. Well, and I think as generations are 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 coming about, and, and our generations get a little bit older, it's less about the we're more conscious about the alcohol content because at first it was a cool thing like, all right, man, 8%, let's do this. But then you're like, you know, you can only have two of them and you're, you know, like yeah. you said, you're ruined and it's uh, or have a pretty good buzz going and you're done for the rest of the day where if you stick with the lighter beers, you can have a few over a long period, particularly like family picnics and things that go on for a longer period of time. So... I don't know. It's. I feel like it, we're just becoming more conscious about what we're doing, and and we didn't really, as a generation, I think microbrews created um, a whole different understanding. I would say the marijuana industry in Colorado is doing the same thing. Yeah. Everyone just knew marijuana, and now all of a sudden the THC levels are like pushing thirty percent when historically they've been like five to ten percent. So while it's awesome and it's good and it's attractive to people, it's sort of people are like, okay, well, I don't need to have that buzz. And I think the same is true for microbreweries. I just want to enjoy it, my beer. I want to taste it also. I don't want to just get messed up, uh, for lack of a better term. All right, you want so, to enjoy yourself, totally. have a couple beers with a friend. You don't necessarily want to get wasted, yeah. Yeah, agreed. And so I love what you did with the next step, actually, because I'm assuming this is the next step, because I know there's now light beers with lime in it. So you just called yours yeah. the limelight. And so tell us how you guys came up with that. I mean, obviously, the light beer took off. So you, I believe you probably added another one to complement it, but it, it makes total sense. And it's sort of the next part of Goliath sort of taking his sling. I mean, uh, David sort of taking his slingshot or whatever and shooting it in the eye of Goliath. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious. Uh, the next move, or in retrospect, it obviously looks really obvious. You know, I mean, we we it was uh, what was it? I think it was summer of 2017. Actually, after Nightlight was super successful, we produced more of it in 2017, and then we did a small batch of Limelight to just riff on the lime. Again, it's just we're, we're calling this like the macro nuisance play. Um, <laughs> it's just poking fun at the big guys. And so our next macro nuisance move was just a little bit of limelight. People loved it. Uh, it, I mean, it tastes like nightlight, but just with a little more citrus in it. And uh, 2018, we did more. I mean, it, it was almost the same story as nightlight, right? It, it did really well in a bigger form. And then this year, uh, very similarly, we just geared up, did a big rollout, 12 packs, four packs all over the place. It'll probably be our one of our top five uh, style or beers uh, released this year. I think it's so cool. I think those two. I just think it's the, the sort of accidents that happen through creativity or people requesting something yeah. or, or trying to do something that that make us the most popular. Often, the things as entrepreneurs we start off with creating is merely just the stepping stone to give us the opportunities that we need to create something really cool. And that's exactly yeah. what, I mean, I mean, in a way it's, 
it's not the typical microbrewery beer, but it kind of is your Mona Lisa. If you, you know, for just how great, I mean, I love the cans. I love the idea and I love the marketing a lot. And I love that it's sort of reinventing something that in my opinion is sort of this traditional representation of older generations that isn't, isn't the way we do things anymore or like things. And we want the microbreweries and we want that individuality as the next generations and as a generation, but it does it in a way that still is true to us in the microbrewery form. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, and I'll be honest, like we definitely had some internal conversations around, you know, is this authentic? Is this us? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, is it, um, you know, there's definitely this mentality that like, well, craft has to be tons of hops, you know, complicated yeast, complicated flavors and this is the opposite of that so you know is, is this against the craft community and I, we've heard like a, you know a few voices echo that sentiment amongst our consumers but um i mean we, it was amazing to see the overwhelming overwhelmingly positive response to it from so many fans who were just like yes like so pumped to see you guys doing this like why not um you know and it's only i think we're what is it Friday, so we're just a few days into our experiment in hard seltzer. Um, we released our first batch at the tap room, uh, I believe, on Wednesday. And I mean, I would say this is just maybe like another step in our evolution. But again, it was one of those like, do we do hard seltzer or not? It's an interesting category. We can brew it at the brewery because it's technically a, a um, malt beverage. Um, you know, it's fermented from grain. And you know, we we did a one that's called Hoot Mango, and it's got mango in it. It's hard seltzer, mostly only big guys, you know, big breweries are doing it, um, or big, you know, companies are doing it. And uh, it was like one of our top performing posts on Instagram in a long time. Tons of comments, people were like so into it. And it was just cool, again, to see something that, you know, was new for us resonate with people. Um, and it, it's just fun to have people sort of like, welcome you along the journey of experimentation instead of saying, you know, like, Oh no, this isn't craft. This isn't you. Um, because we really are experimenters and you know, we're, we're not just opportunistic. We're just trying to look for places where there's like interesting opportunity that fits uh, our culture and our vibe and doing it our way. So like, as you guys are doing these hard seltzers, I mean, how do you find its placement and stuff? Do you kind of have a standing deal with the retail outlets that you go into that they kind of like your brand and so they're open to you bringing new products to market or is each product kind of its own chore to get it in and get the sales out there? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know how it's going to go for hard seltzer because it's literally just like a tiny batch. I think there's 20 kegs and it's just on tap at our Everett brewery and that's it. So it'll be like here and gone in a couple of weeks. And then we're probably going to do more and eventually roll it out to cans. And if people respond to that, maybe bring it to the wholesale world. So um, we will see, but I will say, you know, uh, my, my expectation is that um, at this point, you know, retailers will be more open to giving it a shot than they would have been a few years ago with us. And, you know, generally speaking, just with the retail and draft, you know, restaurant account world, um, our approach has just been developing trust uh, in the brand. Um, you know, it, when you're new with any account, I mean, they're just like, why are you better than anyone else I have here? And so 
I mean, you can say whatever you want to say. Everyone's got, you know, a great sales pitch or, you know, most people have a good sales pitch. <laughs> um, not everyone, but, uh, you know, you can have a good sales pitch, but at the end of the day, you have to back it up with, um, you know, sales velocity and great relationships and great support. And we've really, you know, we, we've been so committed to that on our distribution end. And so, you know, we've just become great partners to so many of our, um, our retail and account distribution or uh, draft distribution partners out there that, you know, there's an inherent trust in the owl, basically. And, <laughs> right. you know, when we bring a new product to them now, they're like, oh, yeah, like all your other stuff has been great. You guys do a killer job of supporting it with POS and people in the market. So, like, we're totally open to giving it a try. And, you know, they're much more lenient when something doesn't do as well because they're like, well, listen, we, we trust that you'll bring something better next time. Um, that's been, you know, a long road. But now that we have it, it's, it's something we, we, you know, cherish dearly. So in terms of having your own, you know, tap room, does that help you too to say, oh, well, we put it on tap in our own location and this is what we found. And does that help substantiate like trying to push it as you then take it out to the retail world? Totally. Um, well, that's sort of a two pronged answer. Um, it does help. And a lot of our retailers and uh, draft partners you know, they follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, so they see the posts about small taproom releases. So sometimes, you know, our sales guys get these emails that's like, oh, when can I get a batch of Fluffy? And it's like, oh, no, like that's taproom only. I'm so sorry. Um, so there's a little bit of frustration maybe. Right. But um, Although that's kind of cool. It's creating say, its own demand, you know. Oh, yeah, it does do that, you know, and then when we do release it, uh, you know, or we, we scale it up to a larger batch, you know, there's sort of that pent up like, oh, customers love this. I want this. I like it. Um, you know, th there's a little bit of with at least a few accounts out there um, tension amongst, uh, you know, we operate a tap room. Uh, are we competing with them? Because, you know, customers are going to us instead of the retailers or the draft partners uh, to, to pick up their beer. So a little bit of tension, but I, I would say, you know, most accounts out there understand that like the taproom is really just like a brand building place and customers try our stuff at the taproom and, you know, most of them don't live that close to us. So they're going to go to their bar next time or their retail store and their great experience with night shift at the taproom leads to a night shift purchase uh, at their store. Right. I just think it's such a great um, tool for you guys. I mean, it sounds like financially it helps you, but it also just in terms of market research and getting product out there, also letting people just kind of know who you are. And, uh, you know, the trial runs, like you said, like just doing a quick batch of like, hey, how's this going to work? And will people like it? And um, I think it's also a cool way for them to get to know you guys and to get to know your brand a little bit more intimately. Because I think when you do go into a bar or into any, you know, storefront to buy something, you, you know, you're kind of just looking at the packaging and stuff. But when you get really the whole vibe of who the company is, and even from how you decorate your place or don't decorate your place or whatnot, they're getting kind of a sense of who you are through and through. And that's a definitely a cool component. Yeah, totally. It, you know, it, it really welcomes people or, you know, reinvites them to experience our brand. Um, you know, I, I mean, almost anyone I talk to now, it's like I've been to your tap room, which amazes me. Like, I, I cannot believe that so many people have gone because, like, I don't know. To me, it's like all the way out to Everett, really? You, you know, I, I don't know why, but I still have this sort of, like, 
bias that like, you know, we still have to introduce people. And obviously tons of people haven't, but I hear it now enough where I'm just like, I'm shocked. You know, people come, they visit, they come back, they're regulars, they bring their dog to our patio. Um, you know, it's a real welcoming experience to people. Uh, but for whatever reason, it's still, every single time I hear it, I get like so excited. <laughs> Um, talk to us a little bit about the sours too that I'm seeing listed here on your website. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those have been huge, um, and maybe like our most—I uh, don't know—interesting um, beers that we have. So we actually um, we were in the sour game super early. Uh, we were brewing sours uh, at our, our homebrew operation way back in like 2010. We started really getting into sours, and then. Um, I think our fourth beer ever released was a sour called Summerweiss, which was a uh, named after Somerville, S-O-M-E-R, Weiss, um, and it had lemongrass and ginger, and people loved it. And so we didn't think it was going to do that well. We just wanted to make it, and people really responded to it, and we realized, okay, there's a niche of people out there that really dig these sour profiles. And so we scaled up uh, – you know, a really small scale, but still scaled up our program in sours. We ended up having the seasonal sour program, and it's evolved a lot since 2012, but we've kept it every year. And, um, you know, we've, we've really changed, like, the yeasts we use and the fermentation profiles a lot to make it incredibly drinkable but still tart and sour at the same time. Um, our fruiting process has really evolved, and, you know, the branding has changed a lot, and now we're we're trying to, you know, just make it cool with these photographic labels. Um, my brother, who does all of our labels now, uh, is also like a really great photographer. And so he bought this special lens that allows him to get super close to fruit. And he's got this like overly complex setup for photographing like these cross sections of fruit and then putting them onto these black labels. Um, but it's just sweet. Like it, it, it just, it's really fun. And the beers themselves are like, incredibly complex um and what i what i think maybe the most fun part about them is that um they they kind of they kind of appeal to two opposite ends of the beer drinking spectrum um the most and that would be people that don't like beer will drink our sours and be like oh my god this is awesome like this kind of tastes <laughs> like wine or tastes like juice um like, I don't like poppy stuff. I don't like beer, but I love this. I will buy this all the time. Uh, and then on the other end, it's like super beer geeks who just appreciate all the nuances of beer uh, can geek out forever over sour beers. And so we're, we're also pleasing that end of the spectrum. That's hysterical that it like goes to both extremes, you know, whereas like the middle crew is kind of like, no, I'm gonna stick with my beer, you know, but you've got the total polar opposite people, you know, both liking this product. And so... Uh, that's yeah, kind of cool. That's where He's, the most passion lies, I think. Yeah, and total kudos to your brother. The packaging is just spot on. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's just got a totally unique look. And I mean, just looking at it, you're kind of like, what is that? I think I want to try that. You know, you don't even know what it is know. necessarily, you know. And so you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. So just curious, does he only work for, for you guys? Is he part of your company? Or is this what he does as a living and does all sorts of packaging and labels for other people no he's just us uh he uh he started super part-time back in i think it was like 2015 uh i was at the time you know doing all of our labels and just like trying to run the business with my partners and 
I mean, I, I, I had a lot on my plate. And so I was like, I commissioned him to just like start helping out. Um, and, you know, he, he actually wasn't a super experienced graphic designer and neither was I. Um, but he was, you know, much more photographic and it had a lot of photography experience. But he sort of just had enough design sense to, you know, help me out. Um, and he just quickly upped his game, learned a lot. And uh, the more we grew, the more I needed him. And then finally, we brought him on full time. And I mean, I, I would say he's grown leaps and bounds as a designer. And I mean, he did the nightlight can, for example, and the limelight. So yeah. that's all him. Uh, the white spears are all him. Um, and I mean, everything's now him uh, with with some supplement from a few other designers yeah. on our team. I mean, I have to say from A to Z, you guys really just kind of break the rules and do what you want. And I think that's what makes your product so completely fascinating and appealing on so many fronts is, you know, you guys are just kind of passionate about it. But you're also kind of like, hey, what's curious? What, what are we curious about? And apparently, you know, it's working with a lot of people, not just you guys. People have similar like, gosh, I want to try that. That sounds really cool. And so, um, but it's, yeah. yeah, you guys have a lot of really great, interesting, cool things, um, coming out of your product line. And so, so what is your distribution? How far does this product span? You know, how far are you shipping it around? Yeah, for sure. Um, so in Massachusetts, we distribute almost everywhere except for like, um, uh, what's the mountain area out there? Uh, uh whatever it's called, I forget. In where? Whatever that area. What's that? Oh, in, in Western Mass. Yeah. Um, whatever. Like deep Western Mass. I'm just blanking on what it's called. But that area. Um, this year, we're, we're heavily now distributing down in the Cape, um, which was which was like an experiment last year. But now we're doing it, you know, uh, more fully. Uh, but everywhere else in Mass, we're, you know, pretty saturated or, or becoming saturated this year. Um and then we also distribute some beer up to Maine, uh, mostly the Portland area, and as well as New York. Um, and again, that's mostly sort of New York City. Um, it's pretty small volume right now to the other two states. We're still, you know, pretty heavily focused on just Massachusetts. Our whole sort of philosophy has been, you know, grow deep, not wide. Uh, you know, don't sort of scatter your beer all over the country or all over a region. Uh, but, you know, basically plant your roots and then grow as demand allows um, and make sure that you have lots of market support to back it up. Because, you know, if you don't have someone in the market, it's just really, really hard to, you know, connect with consumers. Um, our next big market is Connecticut. We're actually launching there uh, in a few weeks. And so that's our fourth state um, since 2012. And so, I mean, I want to go back to the seltzers a little bit because I think to Deborah's point, it's just so creative and it's not something a microbrewery would do for fear of being, I don't know, a bad stigma um, for lack of a better term. But I think what people don't realize is microbreweries started with exactly that same theory. Like, oh my gosh, you're going to brew your own beer and you want to have your own license and you're going to go against Budweiser and Coors. So it's sort of the same mentality that you guys are doing. You're taking what people are responding to and, and doing it. That's the sours, in, in my opinion, and, then, and the nightlight and the limelight. And, and what you're doing with the seltzers also, I feel, is like, it's a disruptor and it's the next logical step. And like we said, because health people are becoming more health conscious 
and they're looking for something different. And not everyone wants to go to a brewery and just drink beer. And I think that that's also one of the things that is happening. I mean, we're seeing it with kombuchas and we're seeing it with ciders and, and all that where it's smart to, to be fun and be experimental and be creative as an entrepreneur in this beverage space, especially as a microbrewery. And brewery doesn't only mean beer. You can brew a lot of things like the seltzer or the sour ales or the things like that that are just so different than your stereotypical microbrewery that I think you guys are really on to something special. And you've got the team. I mean, that's important. And I want to talk about that because you you have three partners. So tell us more about how you guys come up with these creative ideas or, you know, does it start in the brewery or does it start in the marketing or, or, you know, how do you guys work as a team? Because you obviously have a great chemistry. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, what's been interesting is that, like, we've kind of naturally each split into our own areas. Um, so, you know, Rob has been very, very, since the beginning, you know, product focused. Um, you know, he was probably the most like brewer oriented person. Um, we now have a head brewer who, you know, it is amazing. Uh, his name's Joe and he's fantastic. But, you know, I'd say Rob has been like the source of a lot of our innovation. Um, and I, I'd say, you know, he's often sort of, seeding the kernels of like the more disruptive ideas. That's just kind of like his nature more than anyone else's. Um, and, you know, m- my role has been a lot of like, well, how do we, you know, how do we pitch this and sell this and market it uh, and make it sound and look and feel cool. Um, uh, and so putting our night shift face on it. Um, and then Mike has been, you know, more sort of like execution oriented um, you know, he's run a lot of our books for, he ran the finance department on his own for many years um, until we started hiring more people for it. He's been heavily involved in sort of like our CapEx projects, uh, lease negotiations, you know, so a little more on the book side uh, and also like build out stuff. And so it's been fun because, you know, we don't, we don't have a ton of overlap. Um, We definitely, you know, all sort of participate in conversations about growth, but um, there is like a, a fun little process uh, or almost like a circle of how we evolve and it just kind of like handing one thing from one person to the next to the next. Um, maybe like the best example of this is, is um, you know, our our Lovejoy Wharf brewery that we opened in Boston uh, earlier this year. Um, you know, it, it's our it's our first dive into food. Uh, we've you know never made food ourselves and Lovejoy Wharf is a 10,000 square foot uh, brewery, restaurant, coffee bar, um, tap room. And so this evolved from really like, I would say it, it was Rob who was just like, Hey, like, what if we had a tap room in Boston? Like what, what, where can we find an awesome space that feels right? And like, let's just capitalize on, you know, having another brand center closer to the people in Boston. Um, and then, you know, that evolved into becoming a lot of my project, which was let's make it look and feel cool and on brand and, I was responsible for, you know, a lot of the design for the space with, you know, a ton of support from our team. And then Mike was really involved in like the actual build out of it and making sure that it went smoothly and didn't cost too much. And um, now we have this awesome restaurant. And it's not to give too much credit to us because there were tons of other people that were heavily involved in it. But where we participated, it was like a fun little handoff from one person to the next. 
I think that's awesome. And I mean, that's the way to grow, right? Is sort of encourage each other and work as a team. And, and I feel like it's also, sometimes you don't always believe or, or understand what your partner's creativity is or what they're trying to do, but through it sometimes and just believing in it, even though you may not want to going along with it, there's just so much opportunity that comes out of it. You know, I, I hesitation, you know, happens and fear happens in every individual, especially when you're in partnerships, but believing in, uh, your, your partners and, and seeing what they have in mind or believing them and trusting in them and the, the future that they see and are pursuing, you know, and then them doing the same for you, I think is how companies really move forward. Completely. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, we've consistently said like, People, people with you know big egos at this company don't don't do very well. Um, we've ended up letting go of or having part uh, just parting ways with people that you know probably had bigger egos than we do. Um, and so I, I mean I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back too much, but I, I do think the three of us are pretty humble guys. None of us have to be the winner of any argument. Uh, we're constantly trying to seek you know what's the best idea, not what's our idea, and. Um, I think that mentality has, you know, hopefully trickled down to the rest of the company uh, where everyone's just kind of trying to do their best. And, you know, you have to be super open to, you know, what other people are thinking because that's where you learn and that's how we all improve. You know, I wanted to ask you really quickly about this Lovejoy Wharf. And so it's a restaurant, correct? With a tap as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm looking it up online and um, one, the atmosphere fit looks great and the menu looks really great and like it goes well with your, you know, beverage product line. And so that's super cool. And I mean, is this part of your concept of going deeper versus wider in terms of really having, you know, saturating the market um, of closer to where your home base is? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting because we have our Everett Tapper, which actually isn't that far from Lovejoy Wharf, but uh, they cater to totally different audiences right. because Everett typically sees people from, a lot of people from Cambridge and Somerville, but also a lot of people that are just driving from either you know, the South Shore or driving from the West or driving from the North and they park and they you know, have a full day um, or you know, more, more locally oriented people from Malden, Medford coming in you know, on weeknights. Um, totally different than Lovejoy Wharf, which basically does not have parking anywhere around it other than garages. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pain to get there if you're trying to drive. Um, not that it's impossible, but, you know, the traffic there is very neighborhood-oriented or tourist-oriented or people go into the TD Garden because we're, like, basically next to it uh, for games, concerts, whatever. Um, so it's, it's a totally different crowd. And, you know, one thing we often did hear from people uh, – who are our local consumers is, Hey, I live in Boston, but it's just kind of tough to get to your brewery. Um, even though it's only 10 miles away, it's a fair point. And we just wanted to connect with more Bostonians. And so having a presence in Boston and being able to serve food to them, which is just showcasing another, you know, way of our creativity. Um, it's been really fun. And so far it's been really successful. I mean, the, the place is busy. People have responded well. The reviews are great. Um, and maybe more than anything, the team over there that's running it uh, is doing a killer job. Right. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting too, because I mean, there's definitely a lot of moving parts when you start getting into a restaurant. I mean, there's just so many products 
a variety of different employees. I mean, all companies have that, but I kind of feel like restaurants can be especially complicated in terms of, you know, managing your inventory and waste and just on and on it goes. And so, you know, to go from being brewers and that being your primary business to being like, okay, we're going to take on a restaurant. Um, so how did, I mean, to take that leap, did you basically just bring in additional people who had that expertise or did some of you guys just have that secretive knowledge or had some history that lent itself to taking on a restaurant? No, we don't have any of that knowledge. <laughs> um, no, no, we don't. <laughs> Very little. Um, no, we, we ended up, um, I mean, it's sort of a weird story, but we, I mean, we did, we did, so we uh, ended up hiring a food consultant to help. Um, so real food consulting did a lot of consulting up in the, especially in the early parts of helping, you know, build out and design our kitchen area. Um, we did end up uh, hiring a few people to, you know, build towards the project um, who would be, you know, on staff sort of helping us run it. We actually ended up parting ways with some of those people almost right before launch, which was an interesting uh, late last minute development. Uh, it just wasn't a good culture fit. Um, but we were fortunate enough to have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot in place at the time. And we had hired great managers for this space. And so um, for better or worse, we, we launched the restaurant uh, uh, without some of the key people that were going to help run it. But um, I, I think the, the moral of the story is like we had awesome people in place to, to run a lot of it, uh, the managers and the servers and the bartenders. And so, um, you know, the rest of our leadership team just kind of united a little bit to help uh, pull them together. And, you know, our, our, I mean, I would say like our executive chef, James, um, really knows food and has done a killer job of like both running the menu that he started with and evolving it pretty quickly. And um, I mean, I, I just couldn't be more proud of the team over there because they they've really just done something amazing uh, with fewer resources than they were expecting uh, off the bat. Yeah, well, it looks like an incredibly special spot, and I can imagine it being a fun place to just kind of hang out or an easy go-to place if you need to meet someone. Um, you know, just great items on the menu and a price point that doesn't break the bank, and it just, you know, looks yeah. like a really cool, fun place to hang out. And so you, you guys you know, knocked yeah, it out of the park. Yeah, nothing over nothing over $20. I think only one item's only over 15 the ahi tuna tacos. Um and the uh, I would say about half of the items on the menu are also uh, with beer somewhere. Uh, they have beer in the recipe, which has been really cool. And so, yeah, I mean, we're just trying to put a creative spin on food and pair it with awesome beers on tap. Um, I should note, you know, there is a brewery as part of the space. So there's someone or some people that are, uh, you know, working at the brewery there. And uh, about half the beers on draft there are brewed on site and only available on site. That's cool. And does the public have access to or a viewing ability to see the brewing happening? I know people have a lot of fascination with it. Oh, yeah. We, one of our big things uh, in designing it, uh, one of my primary goals was like, if you walk in, you need to know you're in a brewery. You know, it can't feel like there's maybe a brewery in the back somewhere. So um, there's a giant wall uh, that's completely glass that you can basically sit, there's like I think eight tables that are lined up alongside of it, and you are sitting like next to the, where all the brewing's happening. 
Uh, but you can see that from almost anywhere in the restaurant. So, you know, if you knowing that there's going to be this enormous glass wall on there, one, I think that gives the public confidence because they can see the level of cleanliness. And I think people like that, knowing that the product is in, you know, good hands. But do, does that also inform you when you're picking your equipment to try and pick things that are more aesthetically pleasing? Or, or do you just still go based on this is what we like, this is the company we like, and it just is what it is and not worry as much about the aesthetics of them? Um, you mean for the beer stuff? Right, all the brewing equipment. Like the big vats I, I and would stuff. Say, yeah, I would say fortunately, like, most brewing equipment looks pretty similar, and it all looks pretty cool. Like, it, it's just, you can't really pick out something that looks boring. Um, it all just kind of looks a little Willy Wonka-esque. And so, yeah, we, we couldn't go wrong. We picked it, I mean, you know, you can't pick janky old rusty looking equipment because I think that looks bad but we did go with a brand new system from a great manufacturer and I would say you know it looks like a sweet brewing setup well now you just need a Willy Wonka owl beer with the the owl dressed like Willy Wonka (laughs) that's what's next apparently you can do some candy flavor or the what was the candy they came up with the phone home (laughs) yeah Yeah. the the phone home that you're probably good. It's probably good. I'm not your business partner because I would just sit around all day coming up with new beer names and designs, and and then brewery would go nuts. I'm like, no, we got to find a beer that fits this thing I just came up with. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, There's, beer naming is its own venture. Yeah, I, I would have a lot of fun. That's the, one of the funnest things on this podcast is when I hear the names people come up with some of their brands, and like a guy that we had on here has had religious nuts like pun intended and um yeah and he would come up with all these awesome names for the nuts and the packaging just to play on that whole thing which i thought was cool but michael as we wrap wrap things up i want to ask you a question um just as an entrepreneur if you could go back in time and, and tell your something that tell yourself something you you know now that you wish you knew in 2012 what would it be and it can be multiple things uh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I really do think that I I hate to like come back to the same thing, but like it, it I would say it's like the biggest lesson we've learned, which is um, I would tell myself like really live around the philosophy of fail quickly. Um, I think you know we we've learned it, but you know we we've we've still I mean inevitably stuck with projects that we knew were going to be failures or we knew that might be failures and you know, invested too much in them, uh, that let them run too long, kept people around that maybe weren't good fits, but we just tried to, you know, save the relationship or whatever, held on to accounts that weren't good partners, whatever. You know, I think in almost any area, um, you know, we're better at it now than we used to be, but, you know, knowing that going in, uh, you know, just fail quickly, let things go and, you know, find the next best thing um, would, would be a, a huge lesson I could have taught myself. Yeah, I think as entrepreneurs, we hear it a lot, and it's the hire slowly, fire quickly mentality with employees. Yeah. But for some reason, it's a hard thing because as I think as entrepreneurs, we're very 
tuned into human beings and we feel for people based on the hardships we felt being entrepreneurs, uh, particularly in food yeah. and beverage. And you just feel tied to people and it makes it that much harder because I think we're very giving as entrepreneurs for the most part, uh, at least in my experience, particularly in food and beverage, like I said, so we help people, right? We create jobs and we invest in people. So it's that much harder to get rid of people. We're in a corporate environment. It's a little bit easier because you're not as attached because you don't own the business. And yeah, I, I just, it's one of those things because you talked about it and we don't really talk about it on the podcast much, but it is one of those things that I think you're right. You, we, you hold on to people too long and they, they can cause damage and you can find someone that can do a better job and, and invest in people that matters. It's just so hard sometimes to make that decision. I mean, we still go through it and we're, you know, 21 years old as a company and, and even wow. in all of our subsidiaries and we still have this like, you know, okay, we got to get rid of this person that there's always this like sort of hesitation that everyone feels and, and things. I mean, unless there's a total disaster, that's a little bit easier, but it's one of those yeah, things. Yeah, where, the obvious ones are easy. Yeah. The obvious ones are easy, you know, and, uh, it's hard because we talk about it like, you know, I come most of the time I'm like, okay, I'm doing this person a favor also because hopefully they take this as a, a lesson to learn and, and go get their act together or whatever. But it's always not that easy because sometimes you like the person, they just don't fit into what's going on in your environment and in the culture that you're creating. And that gets hard, especially if like I have business partners or, or people that like the person and then a majority of the people don't think they're doing a good job or it continues to make mistakes, it's hard because it can lead to sort of butting heads with your partners and things like that. And it's just one of those things you navigate in business that I think is so hard because one, you care about humans. Two, you you have other people that may care about them as well or, or invested time in them. So it's just getting over that initial hump. And then I also agree with you on the constantly investing in failures thing. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, we all do it. We, we put our heart and soul into something, everything we do, every, and in your case, every beer you brew or, or everything you brew, I should say, since the seltzer, uh, water is, or the hard seltzer yeah. water is becoming something, but it's, you want it to succeed because it's like your child and you want to keep investing in your child and you don't give it tough love like you would your child. You know, at some point you're like, okay, this is not working. We need to do something differently, but we often push it down the road as far as we can because we want it to succeed. And I've definitely experienced that myself for sure. Yeah. I think there's like a, there's an interesting paradox as a, as a uh, entrepreneur because you know, it's almost your job to see opportunity and potential and things that, you know, other people might not see. But on the other end of it, it means you're probably going to stick around or, or hold on to things a little longer than other people would, whether it's people or ideas. Um, and so forcing yourself to adopt that fail quickly mindset, um, I think, you know, allows you and maybe I would say fail quickly and fail often. Uh, you have to interpret that the right way. But I, I think what that means is just like, don't stop coming up with ideas or trying new things. Um, but when it's not working, you just got to move on to the next one uh, and not not get stuck on, you know, well, it's got potential or I, you know, this person, I think if we just, you know, taught, told them the right things, maybe it would work, we gave them a little more time. Um, I think almost always there's like a gut feeling and you know, you just got to trust it. Um, more often than not, you know, we've found that that makes that that ends up resulting in you know eventual positive outcomes. 
No, I agree with that 100%. And I, I agree it's fail often and then fail quickly. It's like if something doesn't usually go right, you usually have a feeling. I mean, your nightlight beer is a perfect example. Like it was sort of an accident for lack of a better yeah. term, although there it wasn't really because you were in the right place at the right time because you were already brewing beers, but that's beside the point. And you had already taken enough steps and failures to get to that point. But it's, um, it's one of those things where you know if it's going to be successful right off the bat. I, I mean, you feel it. Totally. And I think the more time you have as an entrepreneur, you feel it. I mean, that's not saying I make the right decision every time. Sometimes I pursue things that we shouldn't pursue because I, I want it to be long-term. And, uh, and sometimes things turn around. I'm, it's rare, but I would say sometimes you go from a slump to, to a home run, but it's rare. Um, it's, it's way more, more common to actually fail when you feel it's failing. <laughs> so especially as a product Absolutely. line, whether it's a food or a beverage, I mean, food lines we've done and food products we've done and co-packaging partnerships we've done. I mean, once they feel like they're failing, there's often no way to recover it. And that's the same with employees too, actually. I feel like once you feel like the relationship is failing and the trust is failing with an employee, there's no way to recover it. And and I don't know yeah. why, but it's it's just what happens. And, and trusting that instinct that it's going to fall, you know, it's like I'm about to fall, you know, on my face, but I know I can't stop my fall but I can certainly put my arms up to cushion the fall, you know? So it's like why yeah. we sometimes as entrepreneurs choose not to cushion our fall and just fall flat on our faces. Um, you know, that's just the way we are, I guess it's part of the mentality, but I agree with yeah. you. It's, uh, it's the more experience you have, I think in situations, the more you recognize. And when they talk about gut feeling it, gut feeling just doesn't come out of nowhere. It sort of comes from those experiences. And I have a gut feeling this isn't going to work. It's because you've had enough experiences where you know it's failing. And before you throw good money after bad money, you know, it's time to cut the, cut the product from the product line. Yeah. So, and I, I think, you know, I, I think as well, like, you know, you, what we've tried to do or we, we do try to do is um, balance gut feeling with a little more like data driven thinking. So like, um, I mean, this isn't like data, but it is a, maybe like a little more objective. Um, you know, we've, we've tried to sort of define like, well, what is a night shift person? And, um, you know, it, this isn't anything unique, but there's a great book out there that's called uh, The Ideal Team Player. And it basically says, you know, generally speaking, um, when people are have the traits of humble, hungry, and smart, uh, they make great team players and they're successful with most companies, right? So humble, hungry, smart, higher around those traits. And so I, I think if you can define, like we've tried to do, is define our, your culture around, um, all right, humble, hungry, smart people succeed here. And then you hire to those traits and you assess people based on those traits. It, it, it allows a little more objectivity. And so you can combine your gut feeling with, well, what am I actually seeing in actions that either, you know, resonate with one of those traits or fall outside of them? And it allows you to be just like a little more objective in your approach to your, you know, decision making about um, keeping people, hiring people, that kind of thing. No, I think uh, I love that. And I just want to repeat that one more time that that's employees that are humble, hungry and smart tend to be the best team players. Is that yeah. correct? And, yeah. and what was the name of that book again? Just because I think 
it'd be great if the audience could could hear it. For sure. Yeah, um, it's uh, called The Ideal Team Player. It's by Patrick, and I don't know the pronunciation exactly, but I think it's Patrick Lincioni. Um, and he's written other books, uh, The Five Temptations of a CEO he wrote. Um, he wrote another one that I, I loved, and I'm blanking on the name of it. But he, he, tells, he writes typically pretty short books, uh, but they're kind of like fables. And so it's usually like, in the form of, uh, you know, CEO Michael is uh, having a problem with his team. And uh, they're actually very well-written and well-developed stories. And through the story, he kind of shows how, you know, uh, a person evolves with the company or doesn't work out. And the lessons are taught through that fable. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, he's like, a, it's a, you know, he's a really, like, well-read, uh, best-selling author. Um and specifically for the ideal team player, he says, you know, people that are hungry that just don't put themselves first uh, are, you know, awesome hires. Um, or what I say, humble or hungry? Humble. Humble. Hungry. Yeah. So hungry people that want to climb uh, that, you know, aren't happy with the status quo um, are just they're, they're going to do well. And then smart is probably the more interpretive one where it's not necessarily book smart that he's referring to, but it's more like people smart that can read a room that, you know, don't say uh, the thing that kind of like pisses everyone else off in the room, but don't realize it. Um, it's just the, the people that have that like stronger emotional intelligence, um, you know, they just know how to navigate a workforce a little bit better. Um, and if those people have an ego and aren't humble, they actually become really dangerous. But if they're humble people, that actually works out really well. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, actually, and I never put it into those three words, but it actually makes 100% sense if you just think about the words individually, because it's what you need in every company. Someone needs to be humble enough to to take criticism and to learn from their actions and be humble enough to admit a mistake and things like that, because when they don't admit a, mis admit a mistake, you have two problems. One, the mistake, exactly. and two, the person that can't seem to admit their own errors, and, and therefore you don't believe that they can change it or fix it or be a part of the company to find a solution because they're too busy being defensive. And then the hungry parts, I think, is just so important in today's world is that hungry to grow, hungry to do better, hungry to help the company succeed, hungry to help yourself succeed by learning from the company and things like that. So. Yeah. I think it's just so important that smart's an obvious one. You know, I think it's, um, as companies, we want people that not only find the snakes, but kill the snakes that are the problems in our company and, and come up with solutions and are, are driven and, and have the common sense to do better and help employees. And by smart, I think it's also having an open heart to, to hear issues and, and listen to what's going on and what's going on with the employees in order to help fix it. But, the smart part, I think, is not just taking it as a problem and listening. It's actually the willingness to create solutions. And yeah. there's not yeah. a lot of it out there. But I think that, you know, it's something certainly if anyone could take away from this particular podcast. Um, one is the creativity, because I think your creativity and your willingness not to keep yourself in boundaries. I mean, because microbreweries in general, you, you know, you're all entrepreneurs, but really what entrepreneurs do well is they disrupt systems 
and you're disrupting a typical system with the nightlight and the limelight. It's and, and it's going against the norms and, and the hard seltzer and the things like that. And and even the sour ales, what's going on there and the way you're packaging them and and things like that. I think that's so important as an entrepreneur. So I would say the creativity, but the other part is your willingness to fail and try new things. I mean, you said a 300 to 400 different types of beer that you probably tried and brewed. I mean, that's huge. So there's obviously way more failures than successes. But again, as long as you're willing to fail quickly, the failures don't really matter as much because once you hit a great product like Nightlight, for example, you know, things make up a difference very quickly and you have success and the willingness just to do a light beer in the first place. And even if it was a failure was interesting, right? Because you weren't trying to make it for the masses. You were just trying to make it because it was something that was needed. So you already knew it wouldn't fail because people would drink it that were working for you guys. And through that created this awesome, you know, product within your brand. And then the other part I just want to say is the third part is obviously the humble, hungry, and smart, which we just talked about. And that's really cool. And I'm glad you shared that. And I like recapping on the episode sometimes just to really get the points across. So Michael, thank you very much um, for coming on the episode. And I'm looking forward to seeing what, you know, Night Shift has as coming its way. And I'd also love to have you back on to talk about your roasting and your coffee lines and to continue to tell your guy's story. For sure. I would love to come back. This has been a great chat and uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys. Uh, Thank you. And uh, for anyone listening in, um, Michael, would you give them your website and where they can find you guys on social media so they can look for you guys and what that locations and addresses are of you guys in case anyone's in the Massachusetts area? For sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, in terms of uh, website, you just go to nightshiftfamily.com and there you can find info about our beers, our distribution company, or our coffee, um, which we can definitely touch upon in a future episode. And then uh, you can find us anywhere online at nightshift, at nightshift beer, uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook. I think you just type in nightshift brewing. Um, and then in terms of lo- locations, I mean, the easiest thing to do is just Google Night Shift Brewing Everett, which is our uh, brewery in Everett, uh, also a tap room. Uh, Night Shift Lovejoy Wharf uh, is our brewery, restaurant, coffee bar in Boston. Um, and then we're also, we actually just opened up two beer gardens in Boston as well. Uh, one by the Esplanade uh, near sort of the Hatch Shell area on the Charles, and then one a little bit further north in Alston. Um, next to the Herder Park Amphitheater. And so those are both called Owl's Nest Beer Gardens. Uh, If you just type in Owl's Nest, you can find those. Uh, But those are open Wednesday through Sunday, uh, typically like early or midday to later midday to evening hours. Um, And it's a great place to drink beer on the water. So uh, that's where you can find us if you're not looking for us online. Well, and I love the names of the beer gardens and 
I'm making notes here, Michael, just so I make sure and the audience knows that we really, I want to talk about these beer gardens in detail also on the next episode, because I love what you guys are doing there as well and how you've taken your microbrewery to that level. And not only just For in sure. one location, but multiple locations and created that environment. Cause I think one of my favorite things in the world is the beer garden concept, not just the breweries, but actually being outdoors and, and the beer gardens and the whole European concept of that that's really making its way through the United States. So I definitely want to talk about that. So thank you again. Uh, anyone who's listening to the podcast, you can reach me at justin at com, and you can uh, find me on Facebook and Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. Thank you for everyone list- who's listening in and have a great day. Wow, I can't, I'm getting mumbling through that one. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye.